We've been going through the London Baptist Confession in Sunday School, and one of the main themes in the Confession that runs throughout is the pairing of the Word and the Spirit, and how the Spirit testifies with the Word. And so, um, so as we bring the Word, as Ed, as Ed just prayed, we need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to bring it to us, to work it in our hearts, and to enable me to speak rightly. So, in dependence upon the Lord, let us with joy come to his word. So, in John's gospel here, we're in the middle of what's often called the farewell discourse. Is that, I don't know if that's familiar to many of you, that title for these chapters, chapters 13 to 17. And so, as much as I really don't like that title, and I'll explain why in a moment, it does remind us of what's going on. The farewell discourse. Jesus says at the first verse of chapter 13, what did he say? Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world. We're so used to him being gone that we forget he was here. <laughs> and he departed. And this is what's going on here in John. So knowing that he would do this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. Um, Jesus says in verse 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So when we come to these chapters, it's really important that we remember the context of these chapters, that they're all of them spoken in this light that Jesus is going away. So all these chapters are, I'm going away, now these are the things I need to say. But farewell has a meaning and a flavor that is potentially misleading and inappropriate. Farewell could just be a synonym for goodbye, right? So farewell, goodbye. Um... But this is, we know, not just a long, drawn-out goodbye. This is not four chapters of saying goodbye. It's not what this is. The other thing farewell means is fare you well, right? I hope, I hope you do well in, in our absence from one another. And, of course, Jesus isn't expressing good wishes either. So what is this discourse? It's, it's not really a farewell discourse. It is the last words before Jesus leaves, but that doesn't make it a farewell discourse. The emphasis is not on goodbye. The emphasis is not on farewell. The emphasis is on Jesus' promise of their coming reunion. We miss that when we call it the farewell discourse. Because the whole point of the discourse is to emphasize the coming reunion. And not only the coming reunion, but his spiritual and his powerful presence with them until that reunion. So in a sense, there there is this farewell, but there's not this farewell. The whole point of this is something else. Can you see that there's a difference in perspective? Farewell focuses on what is not the main point of this discourse. The departure and the going away is actually, in your handout, the key. 
to both of these things. Why does Jesus go away? So they can be together. Not only together when he returns to bring them to where he is, but he goes away so he can be with them spiritually and powerfully by his spirit. So this is, if we're to call it a farewell discourse, it's certainly different than any other that's ever been. We read in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 14, what we looked at last week. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So remember, Jesus goes not only to get a place ready, not, not, not as we saw a mansion building, but just by his going there, that opens the way, that prepares the place. Future. But he also goes to be the way for us to come where he is. And that's his presence with you. Now, today. He is the way for us to come where he is. And so if he's the way for us to get to where he is, then he must be in some sense truly with us now. So Jesus continues in this light, in verse 7. If you have come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Now the ESV and the NASB, they both have a very different reading in the translation. I, and that reading assumes it's a different Greek reading. The Greek manuscripts have two different readings. So I just want to acknowledge this, because if you're looking at your Bibles, you can be like, why, why did he just read that? In, in, in the ESV and the NASB, it says, if you had really known me, you would have known my father also. But I think that is virtually impossible. In other words, he's implying that the disciples did not know him. He's saying, if you really knew me, which you don't, you would have known the Father. And that's why you don't know the Father. I don't think that's what Jesus said. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You know neither me nor my Father. Who did he say that to? The Pharisees, the unbelieving Pharisees. He says, if you knew me, you would know my father also, but you don't know me and you don't know my father. He says, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the first question I have to ask, are the disciples really no better off than the Pharisees? Is Jesus really saying, Pharisees don't know me and you don't know me either? What did Jesus say in chapter 10? He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. And what, what does my own know me? And he just said that these are his own. These disciples are his own. So he's, his own know me. Jesus just said to his disciples, you know the way where I am going. And what's the way? I am the way. So he just told his disciples, you know me. 
And now Jesus says here, and I believe the correct reading, if you have come to know me, and, we'll, and the assumption is you have, you will know my Father also. Now, there can be no doubt about the fact that disciples will know the Father. Jesus says, if then, if you know me, you will know my Father. Now, we know the disciples will know his Father, so they must know Jesus. So that's the, that's the reading. Now, Jesus isn't casting doubt then on whether the disciples know him. But if not, then why does he say if? That's the question. If you have come to know me, and I tell you what, that is a way of inviting us to think. The point of the if is not to say, hmm, maybe you don't know me. I'm going to cast doubt on whether you really know me or not. No, the point of the if is to invite us, to invite us into a fuller understanding of what it means to know Jesus. See, they know Jesus, but Jesus is saying, he says, if you have come to know me, and it's kind of like he's inviting them to say, yeah, do I know him? Yes, I do know him, but, but what does that mean? Why did he say if? What does my knowledge of Jesus mean? So he invites them to this fuller understanding of what their knowledge of Jesus really means and what it Any guesses what that word is? Yeah, well, you can figure it out one day, right? And what it will one day mean. So we can say it like this. They've already come to know Jesus. Why? Because they're his own. Because they're following him, right? Because they believe that he speaks the truth. They're his sheep who know his voice. So they know Jesus. But... They haven't yet fully grasped what that knowledge of Jesus means. And in part, that's because so far they've only known Jesus according to the flesh. Now, what do I mean by according to the flesh? I'm talking about date on the calendar. I've kind of grown to like just date on the calendar. And you know what I mean now by that, right? I'm not going to always use redemptive historical. Let's just say date on the calendar. But we know what we mean. So, and and the reason I always say date on the calendar is not because I'm on some hobby horse here, because I'm on some kick of date on the calendar. The point is that this is what John is all about, date on the calendar. That's why we have language of our throughout John. That's what we have language, as we're about to see, of now, now, not yet, now, from now on. It's about the date on the calendar, redemptive historical. So what do I mean that the disciples have only known Jesus so far according to the flesh? Well, because of the date on the calendar, they couldn't know him in any other way. Because Jesus is what? In the flesh. In, in the weak, mortal, human, uh, I can die still flesh. In other words, the point is not a carnal or a fleshly knowledge of Jesus. These disciples were true believers. They weren't carnal like that. But their knowledge of Jesus was only in the context of his fleshly weakness. 
How could they know him any other way? That's who he was still. He had not yet been glorified. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, he was still in the days of his flesh. So that helps us to understand why Jesus says what he says to Mary after his resurrection. Maybe we've wondered about this sometimes. John chapter 20, Jesus said to Mary, stop clinging to me. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we might get a little offended. Why shouldn't Mary be clinging to Jesus? He's raised up from the dead. How happy is she? Right? Let, let her alone, we might think. We wouldn't say that to Jesus. But that might be how we could feel. Stop clinging to me, for I have... And then he says something strange, right? For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. What's going on here? Mary was still thinking of Jesus according to the flesh. In other words, and we see that because she clings to Jesus, and her clinging is the kind of clinging that is obviously not willing Jesus should ever leave her again. So she's still thinking of Jesus in, in, in the fleshly terms of his previous pre-resurrection existence. And she's saying, Jesus, I, 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 I'm holding on to you, and you can never, ever leave me again. But Jesus gently tells Mary, why do I say gently? Because I know it wasn't harshly. He gently tells Mary that she must come to know him. Who's the same Jesus she knew before. He's not a different Jesus the one, than the one she knew three days ago. But she must come to know him now in the light of the power of his resurrection. Mary, you need to come to know me now. Not as, not as the Jesus you knew before in the flesh, but the Jesus who is now ascending to the Father to be glorified in him. Mary, this is the Jesus you need to come to know now. It's the same Jesus, but he's entered a new condition. And so it's in that light. See, we, we take this for granted, don't we? Oh, I've always known Jesus. Of course, Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God. And so we miss what that's all about. It's in this light we can understand what Jesus says here to the disciples. Now look at what he says to Philip and to the rest. If you have come to know me, and you have come to know me, according to the flesh, in, in the context of my fleshly weakness, you have come to know me. And that's a true knowing by faith, a believing. You will know future, my father also. And then he says, he says, you will know. And then he says, from now on, you know him. What does Jesus mean by from now on? Now I hope, we've been going through John long enough, that you as biblical, I'm going to say biblical scholars, not scholars as as only a few elite people are that, but biblical scholars that all true Christians should aspire to be. Do you understand now what he means by from now on? What is, what is now? 
Jesus isn't saying from this very second, from this day right now, from now on, you know the Father. Instead, it's a redemptive historical now. It refers to that redemptive historical climactic event of the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. That whole complex of what God did, bearing his mighty arm to reveal and accomplish our salvation. And so it's that event that even now is in a sense already underway. He's not on the cross yet, but Jesus sees it here as though it's here already. It's already started. Why? Because Judas just went out. What did Jesus say after Judas went out to betray him in verse 31 of chapter 13? Now, date on the calendar, is the Son of Man glorified. Not not as of that second. He's looking at a redemptive historical theological now, which is tied to our calendar. So he says, if you have come to know me, and you have come to know me, but, but you know me now only in the flesh, in the context of my fleshly weakness, then you will know future. My Father also. From now on, you know him. In other words, that great, Salvation reality that's always belonged to the future. You will know my Father? Then Jesus turns right around in the very same breath and says that reality is now already in the process of being realized. From now on, you know him. The disciples know Jesus already because they're his own. But when Jesus is raised from the dead, something is going to happen. When he's raised from the dead in power, when he is ascended to the Father in glory, that won't be the fleshly weakness, the days of his flesh anymore. When that happens, then the meaning of their knowledge of Jesus is going to be unveiled for them. They're going to say, oh, that's what it means to know Jesus. They couldn't possibly grasp that before. And then they will know him no longer according to the flesh. Now, that's not to despise the days of his flesh. We still look back on the days of Jesus' flesh. We still read about the days of Jesus' flesh. Those days of Jesus' flesh were essential, but we know him no longer that way. He's no longer in the flesh like that. He's still, he's still flesh. He's still human. But, but he is in resurrection power, ascended in glory to the right hand of God. You see the difference. And this is what Jesus is about to bring out for us. Then the meaning of their knowledge of Jesus will be fully unveiled because they'll know him no longer that way. From now on, Jesus says, you know him and have seen him. Why? Because from now on, you will see me glorified in him and him glorified in me. 
from now on. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What is the ultimate blessedness of man? This isn't some highfalutin thought. It's just for real. What is, where is the ultimate happiness of man? It is to see God. To see God. And not in the sense of seeing a physical shape or form. God is spirit, right? Not in the sense of seeing God's essence or God's very being. That's impossible because in that sense he's invisible. So what is it to see God? What do we mean by that? It, it's in the sense of seeing the full, the full manifestation of his glory. And what is God's glory? It, it, it is the light and, and, and the splendor that flows from his infinite goodness. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the light and the splendor that flows from all his infinite perfections. His, the, the beauty of who he is in his perfection. To see God is to see goodness. To see God it is to see perfection and therefore to see that which is infinitely beautiful. That's what's often been called the beatific vision. Sometimes that phrase has been used by strands and traditions of Christianity that are not the most healthy. But we can use that phrase from the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed be, blessed is. Beatitudes mean happy, blessed. And so the beatific vision is the vision that brings blessedness. It is the vision of blessedness. Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, that's a pretty bold request. And and look at the Lord's gracious answer. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now the goodness of the Lord includes his wrath against sin. But God doesn't say, I will make all my wrath against sin pass before you. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name, that is all the infinite perfections of the Lord. The name of the Lord encompasses his his perfect, perfect character. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me in my essence and live. Now, what was that with Moses? You might say, oh man, it would be amazing to be Moses. I'd love to have seen what Moses got to see. But the problem is, 
What Moses saw was just a temporary vision of God's glory. It was here, and then it was gone and done. It was only given to Moses and to no other, ultimately. And not only that, but it was necessarily limited so that Moses wouldn't die. But, but Moses' request, what it does is it represents the great need that we all have. Moses said, show me your glory. We all ought to be asking, Lord, show me your glory. Where is our happiness? Where is our true blessedness? It is in no place other than seeing God. That's it. Because God is goodness itself. God's gracious answer to Moses, not only does Moses' request represent the need we all have, which is to see God in his glory, but God's answer to Moses is a promise that one day all of God's people would be allowed to see God's glory. Not just Moses, and not just a passing vision of his glory when God passes by and then his the vision is taken away and removed, but rather this permanent blessedness of always seeing God and even of seeing him fully. Now, Philip hears Jesus say, from now on you know him and have, what did he say? Seen him. Philip is thinking of Moses or things like that. And so he responds, well, if it's really from now on, okay, then I'm waiting. Show me the Father. And then he says, and this will be enough for us. Do you see that? Philip's on the right track, isn't he? Philip knows what he needs and Philip knows what is enough for him. Philip knows what is true blessedness. It is to see God. He's still thinking, though, the problem is, of the Father as somehow fundamentally distinct and separate from Jesus. The drift of his question, even if he doesn't realize it, implies something, right? He's kind of saying basically this. If you'll show us the Father, that's enough for us. We, we don't really need Jesus anymore. Now, he never would have said that. But there is a sense in which the logic of his question goes like that. Show us the Father, it's enough. That's, that's what we needed Jesus for, I guess, was to show us the Father. If Jesus would only show them the Father, then that would be enough for them. Now, brothers and sisters, let the words of Jesus sink into our hearts now. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you all, and yet you have not come to know me? Philip? Now, in verse 7, Jesus assumed that his his disciples had come to know him. So, what Jesus is doing here 
is he's not expressing surprise that Philip does not know him. Jesus is not saying, oh my, I thought you knew me, Philip. This is a surprise. No, Jesus is challenging Philip to see what knowing Jesus really means. Yes, Philip knows Jesus, and he knows him savingly. Because he believes that he speaks the truth. And he believes in the God that Jesus came from and was sent from. But Jesus is challenging Jesus to know what that, seeing, what that knowing Jesus means. And in seeing what knowing Jesus really means, to know him all the more fully. So he goes on to say in the second half of verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, Jesus is not saying, I am the Father. He's not saying, I am the Father. But he is saying, he who has seen me has seen the Father. (laughs) I was like, yay! (laughs) That's flippant, maybe, or too trite sounding, but... This is the mystery, this is the wonder, it's the very heart and soul of Christianity. That we have been given the beatific vision. The vision of the glory of God. In all his goodness, all his infinite perfections. And that this vision is not just a passing vision, like Moses was given. It is the permanent blessedness of always seeing God. And of always seeing him fully revealed. Now we know there's an already and not yet. But let's not diminish or minimize the already. Because the vision that we have, the seeing of God that we have today, is far superior than the seeing of God that Moses had on Mount Sinai. Do we, do we comprehend this reality? I mean, I don't want to be Moses and see God on the mountain. Moses wants to be us. And see God as we see him. So the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That is to see God. You see his glory. That's to see God. That's the only way we ever see God. In the what? In the face of Christ. Now, Paul is not saying that Jesus' physical face is where we see it. That's not his point. Why does he say in the face of Christ? Because God said to Moses, you shall not see my face. You shall see my back. So Paul delights to say in the face of Christ. Because now we are given a a vision of God that is far, 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 far superior to any vision Moses ever saw. 
And that's not just to getting us worked up to believe that. That's just a theological truth and reality and an experiential truth and reality. Because what did Paul say? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Jesus isn't saying that everyone who ever saw him pass by on the road when he was in the days of his flesh, like if you were walking down the road and you saw Jesus going by, well, you just, you just got a glimpse of the Father. No, it's not what he's saying. This, this seeing that he talks about, it's the seeing of believing, of trusting. And therefore, it's the seeing that shows itself in following and obeying. So when Jesus says to Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? What's he applying by that? You've already seen the Father. That's the, that's the very implication. You've already seen the Father. You just apparently don't know it yet. He implies that Jesus ha- Philip has. And if that's really true, though, then we ask, how can Philip be so unaware? I mean, seriously. H- how can Philip see the Father and not know that he's seeing the Father? Right? And so we're brought back again to the mystery and the wonder of Christianity. That the Father was manifested to us for a time in the weakness of mortal flesh. Now then, we're turned right back around. We ask the other question. First we were saying, how can Philip not see it? Okay, now I get it. The Father was manifested in the weakness of mortal flesh. So now what do we say? Well, then why is Jesus rebuking Philip? Right? Why is Jesus saying, even as gently as he does, that, 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 Philip, how can you ask me to show you the Father? Come on. Right? Well, here's the thing. Because we say, isn't it only when Jesus is raised from the dead? Well, then Philip will get it. I guess you have to wait till the date on the calendar. So why is Jesus in a hurry to get him there sooner? Um, isn't it only when he ascends to the Father in glory that Philip will understand? Well, Jesus goes on to say in verses 10 to 11, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And now look what he says. The words that I say to you all, I do not speak from myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, if, even if my word was not enough, which it is, but you, know, you get his point, believe because of the works themselves. So what does Jesus do? He knows the date on the calendar. He knows that he has not yet died and raised and ascended to the Father. But what Jesus is saying is, I have spoken to you. I have said things that even if you can't understand it all, cannot you believe it by faith? So he points back to the things he already said. He said, I've already said to you that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. John chapter 10, he already said it. He already said that he speaks not from himself, but he only speaks as the Father taught him. John chapter 8 and chapter 12. 
He already said to them that he does nothing from himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. John chapter 5. And he already said to them, or to the Pharisees and the Jews, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. John chapter 12. So the point is this in your handout. If the disciples cannot yet understand fully what these things mean because of the date on the calendar, shouldn't they still be able to confess these things by faith? But if the words of Jesus are not enough, then believe because of the works. So I want to quote a commentator here who says, Thoughtful meditation on the turning of the water into wine, right? We don't just, oh, look, Jesus turned the water into wine. He's a powerful wonder worker. False people can do that too. At least the appearances of those things. So, but we thoughtfully meditate on that turning of the water into wine. On the multiplication of the loaves. On the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this thoughtful meditation will disclose what these miracles signify, what they mean. That the saving kingdom of God is at work in the ministry of Jesus, and this in ways tied to his very person, to who Jesus is. So Jesus is saying, look at my works. What do they tell you about me? Even if you cannot yet understand fully who I am, you ought to come to a better grasp than I'm more than you presently understand. So what does Jesus expect his disciples to believe? Now this is really important. Notice Jesus does not say here, believe in me. He says, believe me. That. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is, this is a real rebuke to a lot of Christianity that says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. That means nothing. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus commanded us to believe that. So it's completely futile to believe in Jesus. It is pointless, vain, and empty without believing something about Jesus. Let's say more. It is vain to believe in Jesus without believing the right things about Jesus. So Christianity isn't just a relationship. It is not just a relationship. It's a body of doctrines. And I said body because the body helps to remember that they're all a whole and that there is life in these doctrines, but it's a body of doctrines. And the doctrines are just as essential as the relationship. So here's the thing. To the extent that we get the doctrines wrong, then our relationship will be with a Jesus who is not real. Which is a sobering thought. To the extent that we neglect the doctrines, maybe we don't get them wrong, but we just neglect them, 
then our relationship cannot possibly consist in that true discipleship to which we've been called. If we neglect the doctrines, we cannot commit ourselves wholly to Christ. Because it's only when we get who Christ is that 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 knowledge will compel us to discipleship, to true biblical discipleship. Do you see how it's all tied together? So, another commentator says it like this. Faith that there is a mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son is part of the faith whereby one commits oneself to Christ. We are not committed to Christ unless we know who the Christ is we're committing ourselves to. If there is no such indwelling, and if there is not a heart belief in this mutual indwelling, there can scarcely be full commitment. In short, sound doctrine is essential to a genuine relationship between us as disciples and Jesus as our Lord and Savior. A doctrine-less Christianity is a Christianity with no relationship. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be you have to be smart to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying you have to have a theology degree to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm just saying it does in fact matter what we believe about Jesus. I mean, you have to have something, right? And this is what, this is what today's Christianity is, is denying. It doesn't, I, I, I believe in Jesus and that's about enough. I believe he died on the cross and then he rose from the dead. And that's about enough. But no, in the end, that is not enough. Why did he die on the cross? Why did he rise from the dead? Who was this Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead? And it's those doctrines that call forth from us wholehearted love and wholehearted commitment. True discipleship. And so I'll ask you this question. On the basis of the word of Jesus, and on the basis of the works that he did, even in the days of his flesh, I want to ask you this question. What do you believe? What do you believe and confess? We believe and we confess that Jesus is in the Father. And that the Father is in Jesus. And you might say, well, what's the point of confessing that? If that's such a mystery, I don't really understand it. Well, this is the point. We believe that in confessing that mystery, we are coming to see the Son. And in seeing the Son, we see the Father. And it's in this believing that we are given, we are given the full blessedness of the beatific vision of seeing God. 
It's in this believing that we have the permanent blessedness of always seeing God and always seeing him fully. And I'll say the Father. Now, it's in this believing then that we commit ourselves fully to Jesus as the one in whom we see the Father. Did you see that last part? It is only in this believing that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. It is only in believing that that we are able to commit ourselves fully to Jesus as the one in whom we see the Father. Now, even in the midst of this gentle rebuke, Jesus is not saying that his disciples should have been able to know him and see him already as they're about to see and know him. He's not implying, Philip, you should, you should see everything now. What did Jesus say? If you have come to know me, you will know my father also. You will, future. And then he says, from now on, you know him and have seen him. That's why we get confused in John, because he, he talks in the future, and then he talks in the present, and then he talks as though it's already an accomplished thing. You have seen him, but all these different ways of talking, uh, and, and this will help you when you read John. Think of God's redemptive historical calendar, and then you'll understand, you will know my Father, from now on you know him, and have seen him. Do you see how he does that? And so now Jesus begins to unpack this future knowing and seeing that was about to begin even then in that great redemptive historical now. Remember, and he does this in the most astonishing way imaginable. Remember what Jesus just said. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. And then Jesus says this. Verses 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works, and there's the believes in me, there's both, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, he will do. Now, you should have the equipment now, you should have the tools to know already what Jesus is saying there. Greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's a pretty big promise, isn't it? How much did Jesus just say? And it's because the disciples could not yet comprehend those kinds of things that Jesus prefaces his words with truly, truly. It's it's almost like he's saying, I know either one, you're not going to get this at all, or two, you're going to get it and not even hardly think it's believable. 
And so he prefaces it by saying, truly, truly. How can the disciples do greater works than Jesus did? What does Jesus say? How can they do greater works? Because I go to the Father. There it is. What he's saying is one day you're going to see in a different you're going to see me differently. And when the disciples see Jesus by faith in his resurrection power, when they see him by faith in his resurrection glory, then they're going to understand what it means that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. Then they're going to understand that. They're going to understand that in seeing Jesus, they're seeing the Father. And that they're seeing him then as they never could have seen him before. And so as a direct result of that, of this unprecedented seeing of the Father, what are Jesus' disciples going to do? Well, when you see like that, you start asking for different things. When you see Jesus now no longer in the days of his flesh, but ascended to the right hand of God, you say, I'm going to ask for different things. Things they never could have dreamed of asking for before. Things that they could never dreamed of asking even God for before. See, there are things now we can ask of God that we could not ask of God before. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name. This is a new promise, brothers and sisters. This is not a promise that obtained prior to that date on the calendar. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I thought he just said, greater works than these you will do. We see here that the point is not, we will do greater works than Jesus did, independently of him. The point is this. Now that Jesus has ascended to the Father, in resurrection power and glory, he will do these greater works that we ask him for, and he will do these works in and through us. What then are these greater works? Are you getting coming to see a picture? You know, whatever you ask, I will do. Now we begin to see what he's talking about. These greater works, what makes them greater? Are, are, is he going to say, we're going to be like raising from the dead in even more amazing and spectacular ways than Jesus raised people from the dead? That's impossible. You raise people from the dead, you raise someone from the dead. And that's not what he's saying we'll do. What are the greater works? Well, the answer is, they must be the works that are only possible because of where Jesus is now. They must be the works that are only possible because of now. The now in which we're living. When Jesus has already died, been raised, and ascended. And so they're the works that all those miracles or works of Jesus during the days of his flesh, Jesus says, yeah, I did a lot of great works. I raised Lazarus from the dead. I fed people with multiplied bread and loaves and, and fish. But those works were pointing 
to greater works that Jesus was going to do. And those greater works are the works he does through us. Jesus said in John chapter 5, The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father, and so one of the things the Father was doing was multiplying bread and fish and giving them to the crowds. But the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those he wishes. And so what is Jesus doing today? He's not raising physically dead people from the ground. He's doing the greater work of giving spiritual life to people who were dead in their sins, regenerating them, and seating them with himself in the heavenly places. That is the greater work. And he's doing this work through us as we faithfully and earnestly ask him to be doing this work. He's doing this work through his church, through us. Today, what is Jesus doing? He's forgiving sins. And now, sins were, in a sense, forgiven in the past. But now, because of the date on the calendar, the fulfillment of that forgiveness is here. And so they're actually, truly taken away and blotted out. This is the greater work Jesus is doing now through our preaching of the gospel. As we faithfully and earnestly ask him to be doing that work, which is the convicting part. He says, whatever you ask, how little then are we asking? What are we asking for? Today, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is sanctifying and fitting people for heaven through the gift of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven as we faithfully, earnestly, what? Ask. Ask him to be doing that work. And today, because of where Jesus is, no longer in the days of his flesh, but in the days of his glory and exaltation, Jesus is doing all of these greater works, not just for the Jews in Judea, as he was during his earthly ministry, occasionally for some Gentiles, but he's doing these greater works for Jews and Gentiles from all the nations of the earth. What did Jesus say? If, if I am lifted up, I will do a greater work. What's the greater work? Draw all men to myself. So another commentator says this. The works that Jesus has done on earth are merely the beginnings. The signs of the all-encompassing power and glory with which he, as the heavenly Lord, will be clothed and in the exercise of which his disciples will be involved in this climactic dispensation of redemptive history. So now we can already see the answer to this last question. 
Why does Jesus promise to give us whatever we ask for in his name? Because in giving us these greater things that we ask for, the Father will continue to be glorified in him. In other words, the glory of the Father will continue to be revealed to more and more people so that more and more people will come to see. To see in a way that was never possible before the Father. We want to bring people to see the Father. I think of what Philip, I think it was Philip said to Nathaniel. Come and see. We have found the Messiah. Later he could say, come and see. We have found the one in whom is the Father. And the one who is in the Father. Come and see. And see God. And see the Father. And isn't that simply the work and the goal of evangelism? We are calling people to see God. It's the work of discipleship. It's the work of all of life. And shouldn't that be the goal of all our prayers? Why does Jesus promise to give us whatever we ask for in his name? The answer is because it's his will that all whom the Father has given to him should be given the beatific vision because it's his will that in seeing him, they should see the Father. And so already we begin to understand that even though Jesus has physically gone away, he is still spiritually, and sometimes we think, we say spiritually, and it's like, oh yeah, just spiritually. That's why we add the word powerfully present with us. And how do we see this presence today? How do we see this presence with us today? It's in this. He promises that he hears our prayers. And he even calls us up to share with him. He says, you will do these greater works. And then he says, I will do these greater works. So Jesus is with us doing in us and through us the greater works he promised before he left. He is present with us, hearing our prayers, calling us up to share with him in those greater works by which the Father is still, even today, being glorified in him. So the questions for us to think about here at the end, what are the things that we ask for? What are you asking for? What do you want? Do you want the vision of God? Do you want that not only for yourself, but for all those around you? What do you want? I want to ask in particular, what are the things that we ask for together? And as a church, are we praying together? Are we asking for these things together? And then, what is the goal? of all our asking. Is the goal of all our asking so that the Father might be glorified 
in the Son? And have we comprehended then the greater things that he has promised to do through us, through his church, when we ask in his name? Finally, do we know the blessedness of always seeing? Love that word this morning of always seeing in Jesus the Father and of always seeing him fully. Dear Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, help us, help us to know the meaning of seeing Jesus, of believing what he said, of believing about him, that he is in you and you are in him. And so to see him by faith, to trust in him, to believe in him, is to see the Father. It is to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And therein lies our true blessedness and happiness. Because to see you is to see goodness. And we have no other good apart from you. Lord, thank you that in seeing you and therefore in in affirming and just, just worshiping and acknowledging how perfect and good you are in all of your ways, that you are glorified and that you are glorified in Jesus, whom we follow today, whose disciples we are. Lord, I pray that you would, you would work in us these truths so that we would, we would ask. Thank you, Lord, that we, we know Jesus no longer, though we still, though our whole salvation is rooted on knowing that he was in the flesh one time, that he was in the days of his flesh, but now we know him thus no longer. We know him as the one who is raised in power and ascended in glory. That's how we know him. And so therefore we ask for things. We ask for things that, that could never have been asked for before. And so we ask, O oh Lord, even beginning here in this body, that you would grant to us the full knowledge of the forgiveness of our sins and the, and the being raised from death to life and now the work by your spirit of sanctifying and fitting us for heaven and now the work that you have called us to as your church in bearing witness to these realities and that Jesus has promised that he will do these greater works in and through us in the world that we live in so that through these greater works, you will be glorified in the Son. Lord, let us go from here. Let us go from here asking for these things. Let us start there. Let us start by asking. Teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. 
We ask that in and through all these things, you, you watch over and guard this body, your church throughout the world, and that you be glorified through this body. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.